you, thank you very much. So uh, I'm a teacher at Jefferson High School in Boulder, um, so I have a local connection, and as mentioned, I'm also a doctoral student at Montana State, um, and I do study race and ethnicity in the American West as my primary focus, and eugenics in Montana is the subject of my dissertation research, which is just beginning. So to be honest, I have to say it's a little perplexing to be standing here about to talk about babies because it's kind of the furthest thing from my uh, academic radar that I would have imagined. But here I am. The same is true of science. I'm not a scientist, and um, so I'm up here preparing to talk about babies and, and science. And so you know, I wonder why. It's because these things relate to um, my favorite subjects, and that is the formation of identity and, and really how people deal with social change. And so I'm still in the business of drawing conclusions, but I'm really grateful to share what I've uncovered so far in my initial research, which I think fits in really well with the conference theme, Time of Trouble, a Time of Change. So I tend to take a, a long time to say a little. That's what my students tell me. So due to our limited time, I'll read and probably read rapidly. So bear with me there. So, of course, any talk about babies in the early 1900s has to mention Buffalo Bill. That's a, that's supposed to laugh, right? <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Um, but I promise there's a connection. I'll get there. For a man who had been entertaining the nation for 30 years with his Wild West show, it was safe to say that William Frederick Cody, better known as Buffalo Bill, was no stranger to boisterous crowds and exuberant fanfare. At the turn of the century, Buffalo Bill was arguably the most recognized celebrity on the planet, having carried on his Wild West shows hundreds of times around the world. But it was a unique day when, in January 1912, he greeted a crowd of 5,000 at the Denver Stockyards Open Arena. For maybe the first time as a performer, Cody was not the primary reason for the large crowds. He was, rather, a fine compliment to the main attraction. On cue, an announcer spoke to the eager crowd, announcing the winners of a new and decidedly modern contest that had taken place during the three-day fair. Now came Cody's time. As the crowd erupted into cheers and the band struck up a tune, Buffalo Bill halted his horse and opened his arms to accept the winners onto his lap for a triumphant ride around the stadium. Perhaps, as he took in the uproarious crowd, Cody wondered how such enthusiasm could be garnered for the two toddlers, deemed by medical experts to be scientifically perfect babies, bouncing on his saddle. Maybe, as he returned the babies to their beaming parents, he figured this was simply another spectacle of an industry he knew all too well. Or perhaps, as he exited the stadium in what would prove to be one of his final public appearances as an entertainer, Cody sensed an air of change in the world around him. In truth, I have no idea what Buffalo Bill thought about his experiences that day. However, and although certainly unintended by the event organizers, the quote-unquote perfect baby's ride with Buffalo Bill is loaded with meaning about the time period. Cody was more than an entertainer. He was a figure of a romantic frontier said to have vanished some years earlier, and he represented the yearnings of a white middle-class populace to return to those supposed good old days. Cody was a living embodiment of an imagined West. His legend built a foundation of fantasies that ignored the realities of racism, violence, and exploitation of peoples that occurred for centuries in the North American West. In contrast, the unwitting babies on his lap, two of hundreds of thousands that underwent scientific examinations in the U.S. from the 1910s through the 1930s, represented something quite different. They were fresh, new, and eager to have it their way. Uh, as were many progressives of the time. For them, the world changed rapidly, just as it seemed to be doing for many Americans. And it could certainly be a frightening place. 
But in babies, there is hope. And the shift towards scientific expertise and rationale to explain and combat the challenges of life was an attempt to keep up the hope that humankind might still conquer age-old fears and uncertainties. While Buffalo Bill's Wild West show would come to an end later that year, American enthusiasm for perfect babies, and I always use that in air quotes, I just won't do it, <laughs> and the competitions that became known as the Better Baby Contests captivated the nation during the Progressive Era and well into the Depression years. These contests proved to be more than entertainment, more than pageants, and more than spectacle. And we owe them more than a cursory glance or a judgmental scoffing. Unlike the Wild West show, the Better Baby movement, as it came to be known, hearkened to a new age of science rather than a frontier life of the past. But the contests are more than just a representation of changing times. They served as a focal point for struggles over the meaning of modernity, the perceived distance between rural and urban peoples, contests over gender roles, racial hierarchy, and for the power of the individual to shape his or her destiny. So what were these contests and why did they come about? Let's start with the what and then we'll get to the why. Uh, the Better Baby contests became popular after being introduced at the Iowa State Fair in 1911, um, and from there they spread across the United States. They were not beauty pageants, as the organizers were very often asserting, um, but attempts to demonstrate the benefits of standardized approaches to child care as well as the value of proper breeding. The movement was orchestrated by middle-class white women and government health care workers as well as physicians who were primarily male. The Better Baby contests were part of an interesting language of the progressive era related to improvement, uh, efficiency and standardization of life or common sentiments during the time, and modern science was regarded by many progressives as the key to accomplishing those goals. In fact, I've found that the word better appears in all sorts of contexts, and a lot of my research has been in the agricultural sector, so I'm seeing calls for better chicks, better bulls, and even better butter. Um, so this language is, is everywhere. And we'll explore this agricultural connection in a second. Uh, put simply, these contests subjected babies ranging from newborns to five-year-olds to a series of uh, physiological and psychological tests in which they received a standardized score usually ranging from one to a hundred. This is an example of the scorecard that was used that I'll take a look at in one second. But you can see um, some of the uh, this is one of the initial pages of the scorecard um, where parents are filling out information, um, including things such as, was the baby strong or weak at birth, bottle fed, does it sleep in, uh, in a room with uh, ventilation, open windows, which was believed to combat tu tuberculosis, et cetera, et cetera. And these are some of the measurements that uh, took place. You can see height and weight, um, length of body parts, and some very subjective um, categories like poor condition of the scalp, um, things that, you know, again, are very much open to interpretation. Um, head abnormally small or abnormally large, I'm not quite sure what that means. But, um, so interesting to take a look at these. Um, babies were uh, awarded prizes which varied by contests, um, but typically included cash along with medals or ribbons based on their level of perfection. The Better Baby uh, award-winning medal. Um, it's, it's hard to see. It says, yeah, I have a goodly heritage. Um, although these contests took place in a variety of forums, they were most common and most widely featured in county and state fairs. 
The contest founders felt the baby contest would fit in well with livestock judging already occurring at these venues, and the scorecards used for babies were originally adopted from stock competitions. The judges were often described as experts in assessing human stock, again, air quotes, and they typically uh, included a combination of physicians, psychiatrists, nurses, and or public health workers, and in many cases, a single doctor or nurse was responsible for the scoring. So Montana was one of many states throughout the nation that carried out these competitions beginning in 1913 at the Montana State Fair. The secretary of the fair that year, uh, A.J. Burtonstein, declared proudly yet erroneously that Montana was the first state in the West to inaugurate the Better Baby Contest and that Montana's first contest would be held at the annual state fair. Not to be outdone, officials in Dawson County squeezed in a Better Baby Contest at their county fair earlier that summer but the state fair competition far surpassed it in attendance and public interest. In 1913 and in subsequent years, the Better Baby Contest was undoubtedly the prime attraction at the state fair. The Yellowstone Monitor declared it the most important contest we can ever have, and papers ranging from small town to big city echoed that sentiment. These contests took place at the state fair and at county fairs, but also at local health, local health exhibitions, at carnivals, at schools, hospitals, Native American reservations, churches, and occasionally even in people's homes. So we know what Better Baby Contests are and that they occurred in Montana, but what, we might ask through the lens of the present, were people doing having their babies and toddlers poked and prodded by these so-called experts? So now to the why. The Better Baby Contests were part of a larger trend in American society related to a set of beliefs called eugenics. As eugenicist Francis Galton simply put it, eugenics was, a, was the science of better breeding. Essentially, it involved the attempt to improve the human gene pool by controlling reproduction in various ways. As with livestock, livestock eugenicists believed that humans could be bred in certain ways to eliminate physical and mental defects and enhance the quality of the stock, so to speak. Although eugenics had its roots in Great Britain with the studies of Galton, it flourished in the United States. So it's quite common when we talk about human attempts to create a pure race or genetically engineer uh, humans in the 20th century to think of Nazism. Uh, indeed, the Germans undertook a eugenical approach to society like no other nation. It becomes easy to dismiss eugenics as the work of fanatics in Germany who were conducting atrocious medical experiments and euthanizing humans in the name of racial purity, but I believe that's a mistake. In fact, the Germans were uh, or had built their policies off of a foundation that was really solidified in the United States. It was here that eugenics became a full-fledged movement, and it must be noted that the U.S. had a long history of carrying out actions in the name of supposed racial purity that predated Hitler's rise and continued after his demise. So Montana was part of that history. This is somewhat tenuously connected quote here to my topic, but one I think that illustrates um, even Montanans, um, well into the 1930s, um, some of them uh, had uh, eugenics on their mind. When scholars speak of eugenics, we tend to divide it into two sections, negative eugenics and positive eugenics, although I believe positive eugenics is a bit of an oxymoron. Um, so negative eugenics relates to attempts to discourage breeding of so-called undesirables or to elim eliminate them from the gen genetic pool. And examples would include forced sterilizations of certain populations, such as the developmentally disabled, or even euthanasia in the most extreme form. 
Montana had laws in the books by 1923 allowing for sterilizations at mental health facilities in Boulder and Warm Springs under a state-sponsored eugenics board which existed into the 1970s. The state allowed at least 256 sterilizations of patients, although it is likely that number is much higher. There's evidence of some physicians carrying out procedures on their own accord. Dr. R.J. Hathaway, the head physician of Warm Springs in the 1920s, was convicted of kidnapping and forcibly sterilizing a patient in 1924. And as late as the 1970s, female Native Americans on reservations in Montana were unknowingly sterilized by doctors who told them they were undergoing other procedures such as appendectomies. I think because of its heinous nature, negative eugenics gets most of our attention. In comparison, positive eugenics is the encouragement of breeding among so-called desirable population groups. Encouragement could take a variety of forms, from education to tax incentives to actual laws, with the government usually uh, assuming a dominant role. One example uh, was a law in Wisconsin in 1913 which required that couples who intended to marry receive a eugenic certificate of approval signed by a doctor. The Gallatin County Physicians Board met in Bozeman to discuss the possibility of passing a similar law in Montana, although it does not seem to have happened. However, Montana was one of several states to pass what was called a gin marriage law in 1935, which required couples seeking marriage to complete physical examinations by a doctor and wait at least three days uh, to get a marriage license. These laws were supposedly designed to prevent intoxicated youth from marrying while drunk, but they ultimately gave the state the authority to regulate the coupling and reproduction of its citizens. In Montana, this law was overturned by voters after less than a year. So how did the Better Baby Contest fit into the eugenics movement that was taking place in the United States and Montana? Well, the contests were an example of positive eugenics as well as progressive ideals about child welfare and the role of mothers and doctors in promoting a better sort of American. The winners and their parents were said to be an example of what proper coupling and modern scientific childcare could accomplish. But I don't feel that we should look at these contests merely because they seem to be quite odd from our present perspective. So what then can they tell us? Well, I think there are many things. The Better Babies contests reveal real anxieties over public health and a new understanding that harnessing the power of experts, scientists and physicians especially, whose advice often revolved around controlling environmental factors such as exposure to fresh air, diet, and sleep habits could prevent serious health concerns in infants. The involvement of physicians as judges in these contests helped increase their prestige and importance, placing them in, competitions, in competition with mothers over who knew best when it came to childbearing. Many women saw the Better Baby movement as a way to establish a science of motherhood, essentially professionalizing the role of the housewife. The idea of training women in the science of mothering and using standardized practices was central to the Better Baby movement. I found many examples of this in my research, one being a letter written in 1919 by a, a Mrs. V.S. of Montana to, <laughs> to Woman's Home Companion, a widely, nationally circulated, a widely read nationally circulated magazine. Um, and she said that she was, quote, anxious to follow the best methods in the training of my children but I do, not, I do not know how much, I do not know much about the scientific aspect of the subject. Can you tell me where I can get some information? Indeed, at these contests, health workers offered advice to mothers regarding sanitation, diet, and breastfeeding in an attempt to reduce infant mortality, as well as to assert the importance of medical science and its practitioners in improving public health. Government-sponsored campaigns to reduce infant mortality and improve life expectancy were intertwined with the Better Baby movement. Here we see a bulletin about sanitation 
published by the Montana State Board of Health, uh, specifically about combating flies and the spread of flies, but it's got a sort of do-it-for-the-babies theme. Um, at the contests, along with examinations, mothers and occasionally fathers would receive information in some form related to breastfeeding, infant hygiene, physical fitness, among other subjects. Thus, the contests proved excellent forms for educating the public. The laudable efforts to reduce infant mortality can sometimes overshadow the eugenic backdrop of these contests. This is perhaps most evident looking at the children who were judged to be most perfect. There's a common theme among the winners. They were white and they were middle or upper class. In one interesting example from Montana, uh, Secretary Burtonstein's baby, again, he's the, uh, the man organizing the state fair in Montana in 1913, his baby boy appeared in a photo collection of champion babies in uh, the nationally circulated Woman's Home Companion in 1913. But the photo was taken, he's over here on the right side, uh, the photo was taken before the Montana State Fair and before the baby had even been scored. Yet it still served as representative of a model baby alongside other infants and toddlers who had already been scored and won prizes. Thus it seems quite obvious that class, race, or perhaps even active affiliation with or promotion of the movement was as important in qualifying a child for perfection as any scientific measurements. In fact, parents were asked to provide their occupations and nationalities in the front of their scorecards as well as answer a variety of informational questions that were not technically scored, but revealed whether the couple were participating in certain modern or healthy rearing practices, including breastfeeding, uh, sleeping alone, child sleeping alone, uh, and residing in well-ventilated rooms, as I mentioned before. Perhaps the, the measurements and examinations that followed were simply a way to offer a seemingly objective scientific stamp to babies who already fulfilled the most important qualifications. They were racially white, came from a middle or upper class family, and their parents reported that they were adhering to the requirements of better baby rearing. Advertisements, articles, and reports on winners do not mention racial segregation in these contests, but there are many obvious clues that point to the notion that perfection was more than just height, weight, and intelligence. Uh, Fair, rose-leaf skin, it's a quote, and other labels of pink skin tones were common in newspaper descriptions of the most perfect babies, and photographs of winners and their parents revealed the movement to be centered around a Caucasian ideal. However, it is important to note that minority groups, including Native Americans in Montana, were part of the Better Baby movement. Contests were carried out at or near uh, Native reservations in Montana, and winners often ranked quite high on the scorecards. Nevertheless, their rankings were considered in comparison with others of their race. And there is frequent mention of winners' physical features in newspapers, such as the copper skin, uh, and the amount of Indian blood they have is almost always reference, perhaps to establish their otherness. Interestingly, both Native American and non-Native newspapers discussing reservation contests referred to a common notion of the time, the idea that Native Americans were a vanishing race. Both sides were quick to note that the Better Baby contests prove Native Americans were not, as was widely believed, vanishing. I believe these claims serve different purposes, however. For non-Natives, the idea of the still-living, stereotypical Wild Plains Indian was synonymous with the continuation of the frontier. Here we see a staged photo from Woman's Home Companion of a Sioux woman dressed in Native attire at a Better Baby contest with one of, actually, the founders of the contest, Mary Watts. The caption itself claims ownership of Native Americans, and it suggests that while Natives might not be vanishing, they are stuck in an image owned by whites. In other cases, however, better babies were clearly part of an assimilation agenda that had been going on for some time. 
These images of Better Baby winners at the Crow Reservation Fair in 1918 show babies with cropped hair and dressed in clothing similar to their white counterparts. These were models of the assimilated, tamed Indian. The contests were also opportunities to reassert long-held racial stereotypes of Native Americans, such as the idea of uncleanliness, as well as the notion that these problems were linked to Native American backwardness rather than byproducts of the poverty brought on by colonialization. Cato Sells, commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs from 1913 to 1921, suggested that the Native American condition was a result of them being, quote, but one generation in civilization, end quote. Still, Native American newspapers reveal that the Better Baby contests could be used by Native Americans to assert their adaptation to this new age, their level of health or ability to survive, and essentially the idea that they are still here rather than banishing. In fact, people in Montana showed an interesting way of wrenching these contests from their creators and using them for their own purposes. For one, Better Baby contests became a great marketing strategy for businesses. So here's an example from a Great Falls business, Strain Brothers department store, capitalizing on the Better Baby movement to gain a profit. They even held their own Better Baby contest where you could win some gift certificates for the store. We also see these in advertisements for milk and clothing and other things. Better Babies, dress like this. Drink this milk. In some ways, uh, interestingly, babies themselves appeared as a commodity of sorts. And there's plenty of language that seems to regard children as one of the nation's important natural resources. This juxtaposition of human and animal or plant was not unknown before the Better Baby movement, as seen here. In these slides that follow, we see babies referred to as golden nuggets, crops, and in this cartoon, which was featured in Women's Home Companion um, and republished in Montana uh, Health Bulletins, the comment reads, $17 million for better farms, $30,000 for better babies. Uh, so we have a complaint that agriculture is receiving more government spending than essentially child welfare programs. And it's interesting, of all the government expenditures they attack, they choose agriculture. So it's a pretty clear indication of the way the growth of babies was likened to the growth of crops. It was not uncommon to see Better Baby articles in agrarian newspapers and magazines around Montana. Uh, essentially, the idea being that babies were resources that, as was shown earlier, contributed to the growth of the nation. In some interesting cases, Better Baby contests seem to, at times, be more of a sideshow or form of entertainment rather than a serious scientific endeavor. In one example from Glasgow, we can see a better baby, a con be better baby contest aligned with a variety of carnival attractions. Interestingly, the carnival featured some significant racist themes, um, including this imperial Chinese band, where it says, gorgeous glittering orientals will impart melodious music while carnivorously devouring rats and dogs. And we also have, in the lower <laughs> corner here, a, wide, a widely popular carnival contest called Tried to Hit the Nigger Babies, in which um, participants would throw baseballs, sometimes, uh, in some cases, at African-Americans who were, would agree to stand in for that purpose, and in many cases, mannequins with stereotypical black features. Um, and you can see right here, by the way, there's also a Better Baby Show. Okay, so it's an interesting, again, sort of combination of spectacle and entertainment, so to speak. 
Uh, I've also come across a few interesting examples of people who clearly did, clearly did not take these contests seriously. When one man was interviewed about what he fed his two prize-winning children, he jokingly replied, a straight diet of ice cream. I like that because I think we always need to keep our tendency to overgeneralize in check. And people are incredibly unpredictable creatures. Um, another interesting aspect of these contests is the way in which they revealed a sharp divide between the city and the country essentially a competition over ownership of the proper way of living in this new era as demonstrated through the quality of their offspring and their child-rearing practices. Interestingly, contest organizers had separate categories for city and rural babies, with urban babies often regarded as having obvious advantages over their rural counterparts, especially in terms of healthcare access. On the scorecard here, we clearly see the check marks for rural and city. The Midland Fair and Billings even had separate categories for their student academic competitions in their fair. For example, for a penmanship contest, there were separate country and city awards, the assumption being city children had unfair economical advantages. However, those in the country fought back. They often highlighted the open air of country living at a time when fears of tuberculosis occupied the nation. There's mention in their newspapers of the slower pace of country life, of healthier food, closer family bonds, etc. And small towns in Montana especially often announced contest participants in their uh, local papers and when they were awarded prizes were quick to claim them as our babies. Indeed, there were some in the country who were quite concerned, uh, or still I should say, there were some in the country who were quite concerned about the fate of their babies in this new world. Uh, Mrs. W.C.J. of Montana, wrote to Woman's Home Companion in 1913, quote, we have a little girl 16 months old and we do not live in near any place or persons where we can get the much needed information we so covet. 12 miles from town on a homestead in Montana, with our first baby, scarcely any neighbors. Now if you can give me or tell me where I can find out how just, uh, just how a baby should be fed and cared for, I would be a thousand times obliged. End quote. So clearly, to wrap up, the Better Babies contests were rooted in eugenics. However, they are more than oddities and more than pseudo-scientific spectacles to point our fingers and laugh at. And as much as the leaders of the eugenics movement and government agencies attempted top-directed control of this campaign, where the preferred white urban middle class would lead the charge for improvement, Better Babies contests came to mean different things for different people. However, I believe there is a recurring theme related to the anxieties people felt around shifting identities and social changes in an uncertain world. The contest revealed genuine concerns over public health, struggles between classes and racial groups, conflicted ideas about rural and urban life, and significant changes in gender roles. Thus, at the heart of the contest that featured innocent and adorable babies seemed to be an undercurrent of fear. Rather than view these exclusively through the lens of eugenics, we might do well to consider them as part of a broader trend to alleviate social disruption. If only Montanans and other Americans could reproduce wisely and raise their most important crop, their children, in a scientific and modern way, if only the nation could streamline and standardize its production and rearing of human stock, perhaps the next generation might be better. Perhaps they might save the day. In the end, however, the creation of perfect babies just like Buffalo Bill's Wild West show proved to be mere fantasy. Thank you. Thank you.